Okay, here's why you need the Bible, the actual Bible itself. It'll be a better exercise for you. So the first thing I probably should tell you about Lamentations is Jeremiah's whole book is about the prediction of the downfall of the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. So if you don't get this, you're not going to get the whole story for tonight. So Jeremiah is the prediction of the downfall or the judgment against Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And Lamentations is a look back lamenting the fact that it happened, right? And here's what I want to show you in Lamentations. I hope you never forget this your whole life. I don't think you're going to. Lamentations has five chapters. Now, I want you to notice something that I bet you never noticed before. Chapter one has 22 verses. Look there. Just take a mental picture in your mind. Then chapter two, look at this. Huh. 22 verses. Watch this. Chapter three. You think it's 22? Wrong. It's 66 verses. Then watch this. Chapter four. 22 verses. Chapter 5, 22 verses. Now, why did I show you that? Because Lamentations is a book of poems, five separate poems. And they're all written in sort of like, um, sort of like for a funeral, a dirge. I think the word's elegy, E-L-E-G-I-E-S. Am I saying it right? Anyway, a poems for funerals, and some people believe that these five poems were written like they would write a poem for a person, but for the city. But here's something that's really interesting, and I hope you never forget it. Chapter one is an acrostic. So they have 22 letters, get it, in the Hebrew alphabet. So the first verse of chapter one is the A. It's not, I don't think it's an A, but you, you get what I'm saying. Until they get through tw all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, then the next chapter is the same thing, an acrostic. But this is fascinating. When you get to chapter three, when you get to chapter three, it's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, watch this, three times. Then it's the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, three times. Get it? Then chapter four is an acrostic again, A through Z, although I know it's not A through Z, but you get what I'm saying. The first letter of the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet so the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and this is fascinating, chapter 5. By the way, chapters 1, 2, and 4 are in the exact order of the Hebrew alphabet, but not exactly. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But the last chapter is an acrostic again, but all the letters are all scrambled up. So it has every one of the 22 letters to begin the alphabet, but they're not in order. Isn't that interesting? And let me tell you why. Well, I'd like to, but I don't know, and no, neither does anybody else. But it's some sort of poetry, and it's a funeral poetry, or 
you know, poetry like a funeral for a person, they believe. And this is interesting. I mean, most people just say, well, it was written by Jeremiah, and I obviously think it is. And here are the two clues that would say it's Jeremiah who's writing this book, Lamentations. One comes from the introduction to the Lamentations in the Septuagint. Raise your hand if you know what the Septuagint is. Okay, the Septuagint is a Greek version, listen, a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, including the Apocrypha, made for Greek-speaking people in Egypt in the third century and has been adopted by the early church and uh, there's some other things about it. But in the Septuagint, the heading for the book reads this, this way. And it came to pass after Israel was taken captive and Jerusalem laid waste that Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem and said, dot, 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 dot. Now, in the Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 35, verse 25, it reads this. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah and their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. So, although it doesn't say it right here in the book, almost it's universally accepted that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. Now, here's something fascinating. In the original Hebrew, the title of the book isn't Lamentations. The title of the book is How. Look down to the first two or first verse of chapter one. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she is. Who has great or who was great among the nations? Now, let me ask you something. When you get into a place of suffering or sadness or loneliness or Greek or grief, not Greek, <laughs> grief, what often happens? We begin to ask God questions like, how could you let this happen? Right? And so in the Hebrew, as I said, the Hebrew Bible, this book is entitled, How? But here it's Lamentations. What, what is a lamentation? What is a lament? A lament. It's a cry of the heart. What book besides Lamentations do you see several laments? Oh, you all knew it. Boy, you're good. Yeah, that's right. You see Lamentations or laments considerably or consistently in the book of the Psalms. And what are the Psalms known for and as? I mean, the Psalms are known as honest cries of the heart, aren't they? I mean, people get real in the Psalms, don't they, the authors? So what is a lament? It's a, as one author says, a, a cry or listen to this, a passionate expression of grief. But in the Bible, uh, the same author explains, it's more than just a cry of pain or a walking through grief. Now watch this, watch. I want you to hear this. According to 
Mark Vrogop, he wrote a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. It was the 2020 book of the year, Christian book of the year, 2020 book, uh, Christian book of the year, The Art of Lament. Listen, listen to what he says. He says that in the Bible, a lament is more than a cry of pain or a walking through grief. Watch. Lament is a prayer in pain, watch, that leads to trust. You want to write that down. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Or how about this that he says? Lament, oh, I love how he writes this. Lament gives voice to strong emotions that believers feel because of suffering. It's a path to praise as we are led through our brokenness and our disappointment. I'm going to keep going because this is too good. A lament is a transition between pain and the promise. Write that down <laughs> or remember it. A lament is the transition between the pain and the promise. It's not just the pain. That's not a lament. It's the pathway from heartbreak to hope, he writes. Isn't that fascinating? Okay, now let's talk about another big book of laments. We just started, uh, got done studying a few months ago. Job, I mean Job. Job, he laments, doesn't he? But before we begin this book and totally compare it to Job. Remember, in Job, he was lamenting for personal suffering. Here in Lamentations, Jeremiah is lamenting for national suffering. That's one big difference. And in Job, there was really no reason why he was suffering. Remember that? It wasn't because of some great big sin that he was hiding. In fact, that was the big debate with his and he and his friends over and over again. But in Jeremiah, or excuse me, but in Lamentations, we know why there's national suffering because they tell us right here in the poems. It's revealed. So, as we go through this, I want us to take, we're going to take two of them tonight. I want us to think about what the pastor said, Mark Vrogop, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, in his book. Lamenting isn't just feeling the pain and crying out. It's the bridge between the pain and the promise. Now, you remember, don't you? And I say it often from up here. In the Old Testament, in the early parts of the Old Testament, remember the story of the Jews is that they complained and murmured. But if you read the Psalms, you're like shocked in some places. Like, for instance, you know this because it's Jesus on the cross, but... I mean, you're shocked in some places because the author is really raw with God. For instance, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? So there must be some sort of difference between complaining and murmuring, right? Because that was really something that displeased God and lamenting. And hopefully over the next two weeks, we're going to discover a little bit about that. See, because lamenting, even though you're real and raw with the Lord, leads to trust and grace. Complaining is always, it's sort of like sarcasm. You're complaining about the current situation, but what's underneath it is you're saying, Lord, you don't know what you're doing. Lamenting's a little different. Lord, I don't understand why I'm in this situation, or Lord, how could this be? Or Lord, why is this? And then there's always a pivot in the laments. And the pivot is, maybe, and I'm sort of making this up, but they sort of say this in the Psalms and other places, maybe I don't fully understand, Lord, but in the pain, I'm going to still trust. It's sort of like that verse that says, in Jesus Christ are all the promises, yes and amen, God has supplied everything to us for life and godliness in Jesus Christ, but we got to say amen to them. And oftentimes we don't say amen to them. For instance, forgive. Forgive? Well, if you don't forgive, your Father in heaven hasn't forgiven you, and it's not a get-to-give thing. It's this thing where because we're New creations in Christ, the Bible describe us, describes us as forgiving people. The Lord is saying, if you have something against somebody, you will forgive because you're a new creation. But oftentimes people don't say, amen. They say, I can't. And see, the Holy Spirit comes in when we agree with those promises of God. And that's similar to this lament idea. When you say, Lord, I don't know what's happening. How can this be? And yet, Lord, I'm going to trust. Wow, that's powerful. So I'm going to take you through the first two chapters. We're going to sort of talk about what we can discern, even though this is on a national level, what we can discern and learn from this And then see where it goes. See what the Lord does. How lonely, verse 1, chapter 1, sits the city. Now, everybody look up here. How many verses in the first chapter? Oh, man, you guys are smart. How many in the second chapter? Third. And then fourth and fifth. You'll never forget it. I'm so happy. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. He, or her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity. 
Under affliction and servitude, she dwells among the nations. She finds no rests. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. Now, see, that's it, right? I gave away this store, but how and why? You know this, because you've been here following along with us. Babylon was used as an instrument of judgment by God. God actually used the enemy of his people to come into the southern kingdom of Judah and administer judgment by bringing them out into exile, bringing them back to Babylon. And he did it in three waves. 605 B.C., first wave. 597 B.C., second wave. 586 B.C. is when he really did a number on Jerusalem. He came, or the Babylonians came and sieged the city sort of like a boa constrictor for several months, froze them out, no food, no water, and sort of just strangled them off and delivered a death blow in 586 B.C. At this time, just to orient yourself, you have Daniel as one of the captives who was taken in the first wave of exile. He's prophesying in the court. This is amazing. God is amazing. Daniel is prophesying in the courts of the political people of Babylon, the royalty. How can this be? Ezekiel is a prophesying in the wilderness, out in the wilderness, up in Babylon. And Jeremiah is back home in southern Judah, prophesying all at the same time, contemporaneously. Isn't that incredible? God cares for his people. But we see right here why Jeremiah is lamenting. Jeremiah is lamenting because... Judah has gone into captivity, verse 3, and she's lonely now. I mean, the people have gone into captivity. There was a little remnant that went down to Egypt against God's advice. Now watch this. The city is there, and there's no life. It's lonely. Compares it to widowing, and she was formerly great among the nations, but now has become a slave. I mean, royalty has fallen to slavehood, and she's sad and bitter in the night in her tears and nobody would comfort her and that's a reference to the people she tried to make alliances with Egypt Babylon nobody would come to comfort her everybody has dealt treacherously and they've become her enemies ever felt like this folks the world's against you well God's judgment came and she the people went into captivity and she the city's under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations, finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. Now watch. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. Now you know this, right? Leviticus is my favorite book. No kidding. And Leviticus 20, oh, not 20, but 23, tells us about the feasts that God ordained. And what were these feasts speaking of? God himself sending his son Jesus. And there were three feasts in which each family around the country would have to come back into Jerusalem. They were required to do so. So at feast time, what was the city like? It was boiling over. I mean, it was just a, a hub of activity. 
And see, this is really sad. Because of sin, we'll see that in a minute, their own sin, the things that God had set up in their lives were empty and gone. I mean, what was the Passover saying to them? God's going to pass over if you have blood on the doorposts. The angel of death will pass over and your family will live. And the Lord wanted them to remember it year after year after year. So pointing to Jesus. And here, none of that's going to be happening. Because Judah is empty. And the set feasts, none of them will take place. All her gates are desolate. The priests sigh. I mean, they're wiped out. They have nothing to do. There's no activity for God there. Her virgins are afflicted and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgression. There it is. He pops the lid on it. He says right here, different than Job here now, why are they in captivity and why has the judgment of God come against this country or this kingdom, the southern king, because of her iniquity and her adversaries have become her master. Now, I want you to think about that. Central to the pain that Jeremiah and all the people are feeling, now watch this, are that the adversaries of the people of God are winning are you catching that? You ever said that to yourself? Why is he prospering? He doesn't follow the Lord or she doesn't follow the Lord. Come on, Lord. I'm doing everything you asked me to. I'm going to the Bible studies. I'm doing the prayers. Come on, man. What's going on? That, 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 how could this happen? How? Why? What? Well, here they felt this. And he said here in his word through Jeremiah, but it's your own fault because of your transgressions, her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. See, that's sort of what, not sort of, that's what sin does, isn't it? It leads to being in bondage and sin. And the enemy has his way with you when we succumb to it. And from the daughter here, verse 6 of Zion, all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. They could hardly move on and go on. Anybody ever felt like that? You just, everything's come against you. You hardly could come, go on. You have no strength. You're skinny, you know, you know, physically or, you know, emotionally. You just have no nourishment. And then the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things. Now that's tough. Think about it. They're going, remember how it used to be? Remember when we were, Walking in the ways of the Lord and our, uh, you know, our forefathers were walking in the ways of the Lord. And remember when the Lord said, if we walk in your ways, everything is going to go right. Why? That, that must have been beautiful. And now they're not enjoying that. That has to be tormenting. Well, they remember all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the enemy. With no one to help her, the adversary saw her and mocked at her downfall. Watch this. Here it comes again. You think God isn't interested in telling them why they're in this predicament? Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Could he be more plain than this? Therefore, she has become vile. 
There's mourning now, not just for the destruction of the city, but what lies underneath or with the reasons for the destruction of the city. And it leads me to think, do you read, do you watch the news and get so upset you have to turn it off or you yell at the TV or you tell your wife, I can't believe this, and you get up and you, you know, slam the door or something or the wife does the same, I don't know, right? No one else does that? Well, okay. Well, here, do you see why, what's going on? The Bible's telling us that the sin that you see or excuse me, the vileness that you see, sorry about that, the vileness that you see on that tube that pipes into your living room, all that stuff is because of sin, man. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Now he starts talking about how she's committed spiritual adultery and she's a harlot. They've seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. She feels shame. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. You see, sin doesn't consider its destiny. Are you catching that? It's just there and... Man, I'm just going to go for it, and it might feel good for the moment, or be good for the moment, or man, if I just look at that on my phone, or you know, who's in the who's in the grocery store and going to see me in Atlanta picking up a Playboy magazine? Nobody knows me. And who considers the destiny of the sin? But watch, those who succumb to it, their collapse is awesome. It's terrible, and she had no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. The adversary, watch this. I, don't, I won't explain it in detail because we're all adults here. You know what this is saying, and it's pretty graphic. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things. This is spiritual adultery and shame and being exposed, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Sin has now impacted at its core, down to the core, because what was the core, the heart of Jeru or Israel or Judah? It was Jerusalem, it was the temple, it was where the Shekinah glory of the Lord resided. It's infiltrated the core, for she has seen the nations come into the sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. This, this sin has impacted an entire nation right at its core. And in chapter two, we're going to see the leaders were taken captive. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. That's Jerusalem crying out, it seems to be. And then it says this, and you can read it in a couple of ways, but this is fascinating. Watch this. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. In one hand, you see here, along with verse 9, 
there was nobody there to comfort her. I mean, she was stripped of everything, shamed, naked, exposed, and there was nobody there to comfort her. What does 2 Corinthians say about who God is? He's the God of all comfort. How horrible it is in the middle of a lament or a suffering or anything when we don't feel the comfort of God. And that's what's happening here. Another way to read this, and some people read this, they think it's a prophecy of the cross. Think about it. Where was Jesus hung on the cross? He was hung up on a major road. That's why the sign was there, to, announced in all the different languages about who this person was and what were people doing. They were just passing by as the people were being crucified, not paying attention to the one who came to save them. Is, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see, is there any sorrow like my sorrow? See, sounds like Jesus. There's pain, there's the wrath of God, and there's sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his anger, his fierce anger. It pleased the Father to bruise the Son. That's what the Scriptures say. And when I read these things and I think about God being both the just and the justifier, I look out at us, including, and I say, my goodness, we really matter. We matter to God. It pleased the Father to bruise the Son. It's almost too hard to say. It's staggering. Well, keep going. Verse 13, from above he has sent fire into my bones. Fire means judgment. And it overpowered them. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He's made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound. What does sin do? It yokes you up. It binds you up. They were woven, woven together. Are you catching that? God wove together the yoke that, they, that was put around and was bound up his people and thrust upon his neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those who I am not able to withstand. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in the, my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young man. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. <laughs> it, these are the images, all these different images to describe how Judah, Jerusalem, was ruined, but he was the, the city was ruined by God because of the sin. And he just tells us this over and over again. For these things I weep. Remember the weeping prophet? My eye, my eye overflows with water. He's just bawling because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me uh, is far from me my children are desolate because the enemy prevailed, prepared, uh, prevailed this this is the worst part I sort of alluded to it for a minute it's because the people have no sense of the presence of God in their sorrow and do you see the prophet's heart the prophet's heart is that people he's praying he's hoping He's speaking, he's declaring, he's teaching, he's telling, no, no, don't lose hope. 
The God we serve is the God of all comfort and strength. See, that's a word for us. I bet there's people in here who've been through really, 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 really difficult circumstances. And the circumstances were and are difficult. And yet in the middle of the circumstance, there's one who can comfort even in the times of desperation and hurt. Well, here he goes, 17, Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an, become an unclean thing among them. I personally believe, I know that we're adults here, so I'm going to say it. That's a reference to Leviticus 15, where it's talking about the impurity of ladies and what that talks about, because he's, he's mentioned it here in chapter 9 and chapter 10. You get the tape on that and listen to that, Leviticus 15. But what he's saying here is these people have chosen to not follow me and they've become unclean. And they've become or come to a place where they needed to be restored. And the Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. They couldn't, there was no food to eat, and the leaders are leaving. And then here sort of is a little bit of a pivot. See, O oh Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. This is a real prayer of repentance. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves as home as it like death. And now the city speaks. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They're glad that you've done it. Bring on the day you have announced that they become like me. Bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me, right? That all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me. For all my righteousness, for my sighs are many and my heart is faint. Now, you know this, right? There are, thing called, there are these things or these psalms called the imprecatory psalms. Where you read them and you go, wow. <laughs> He's calling judgment down upon other people here in the psalms. And you're, we even had a men's breakfast about when one of them was being taught and people were asking, is this biblical? Should we be doing this? See, notice up in verse 21, part of the prayer was that they become like me or become like the Lord. What this one is praying is that people would turn, even if it meant judgment, so that they would turn from being people who sought their own glory to seeking the glory of the Lord. Are you catching that? There's a difference between me praying for your downfall just because I hate you or don't like you. Not that I hate you or don't like you, but or praying for your judgment or for something to happen to you so that you'd turn around and your whole life would be for the purpose of giving God glory. There's a, that's a different prayer now. And that's what's happening here. Keep going. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. Who here knows what the cloud is in the Old Testament? 
What do you know about the cloud? They followed a cloud by and a fire by. And there was a cloud that entered into the temple. And that cloud represented the what? The glory of the Lord. And so they're real accustomed to this. And in this poem here, in the first alphabet or letter of the alphabet, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion. That's a title of distinction with a cloud instead of by his glory. Now the cloud that's over them is in his anger. Oh, my. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and didn't remember his footstool in the day of his anger. Most people believe he's referring here footstools, you know, in the, uh, in the Old Testament, often the footstool is the earth, but here they think it means the temple. And God didn't remember his temple in the day of his anger. The Lord is swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He's thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughters of Judah. He's brought them down to the ground. He's profaned the kingdom and its princes. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He's drawn back his right hand before the enemy. He's blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire, devouring all around, standing like an enemy has bent his bow. He's against his people, folks. With his right hand, like an adversary, he has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. Oh, on the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Sounds serious, right? The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up all her palaces. He's destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He's done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his palace of assembly. In other words, the temple is wrecked. The Lord has caused the feasts and Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion. All the memorials that were set up to remind the people of him wrecked. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. The Lord has spurned his altar, abandoned his sanctuary, given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They've made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a feast. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He's stretched out a line. By the way, you could go to 2 Kings 21, Isaiah 34. Jerusalem was built by a line like a survey line. It talks about it in those two chapters. And now it's destroyed by a line. The Bible's amazing. He's not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. His gates have not sunk into the ground. He's destroyed and broken her bars. Her kings and her princes are among the nation. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughters of Zion sit on the ground and keep silent. They throw dust on their heads. I mean, they're just shocked. And they're in, you know, they have, like, they're in shock. And they throw dust and they gird themselves with sackcloth. And they're so sad. And the virgins, the young people of Jerusalem, bow their heads to the ground. They have no hope. My eyes fail with tears, Jeremiah said. His heart is troubled. Watch this. My bile is poured out on the ground. That's a reference to a liver. <laughs> the liver. And they believe that that's where your psyche was from. And all your emotions were down here in the bowels. So what he's saying is, I mean, my emotions are just coming vomiting out of me. That's how bad he's weeping for her. Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city, they say to their moms, 
Where is grain and wine? They're hungry as they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare you with that I may comfort you, O virgin of Zion? For your ruin is spread as wide as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. Catch this. Remember, watch. In Jeremiah, the prophets were saying this. Don't listen to Jeremiah. Something's going on up here with Jeremiah. There's no way God's going to destroy Jerusalem and Judah. There's no way. That's what the prophets were saying. And there were many of them saying it. And Jeremiah was the only one that said, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Now watch what happens. They are false. Those false prophets, they had deceptive vision. They have not uncovered your iniquity. (laughs) Jeremiah was praised for talking about sin. Some churches need to hear that, folks. We don't want to talk about sin anymore. We want to call it all these different words that sort of lend itself to, you know, whatever. Or, but we don't want to talk about sin because, you know, somebody might come in here who might want to come and help us out in the children's ministry, and we don't want to offend them. Or maybe they're rich and they'll give good a lot of money, and we certainly don't want to offend those people. But here it says the false prophets didn't uncover the sin to bring back the captives. They've envisioned your false prophecies and delusions. All who pass by clap their hands. They hiss. They shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? They're they're making fun and mocking. All your enemies have opened their mouth. They hiss, gnash their teeth. They say, we've swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. And we have seen it. Now, this is something interesting. Sidetrack. We're in chat verses 15 and 16. Guess what the poetry guy did right here? He switched the letters. And no one knows why. And in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, he did it the same thing in chapter 15 or verse 15 and 16. You getting what I'm saying? Well, if not, see me after. (laughs) I don't even know if I get what I'm saying. No, I'm kidding. The Lord has done what he purposed. He's fulfilled his word, verse 17, which he commanded in the days of old. He's thrown down and has not pitied, and he's caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. See, O Lord, and consider to whom you have done this. Should the women eat their offspring? Apparently that was happening. The children they have cuddled? Should the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Apparently that was happening. Young and old die on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my younger men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You've slaughtered, not pitied. You've invited as a feast day the terrors that surround me in the day of the Lord's anger. There was no refugee or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. And now you've just read two poems of lamentations. Now, I want to just say something, and then we'll stop. (laughs) 
But I want you to see something here. Did you know the pivot at the, notice the pivot at the end of chapter two here? There was a pivot, arise, cry out in the night, verse 19, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Be honest with him. Say what you feel. But remember, it's the bridge, lamenting is, between the pain and the promise. It's not just to tell God how crappy he's done with your life. That's Old Testament stuff. That's the numbers stuff that got the Israelites in trouble. This is a bridge to finding and remembering all that God has done, will do, can do, is to bring you up and out of the miry clay and set your feet upon the rock. You see, this book talks to us about this destruction of this city. And that tells us, doesn't it, that God's warnings, God's word, God's promises will come to pass no matter what anybody says. You see, the Lord is coming back, and in the twinkling of an eye, He's going to bring us up and capture us in the clouds. And the Lord then is, after a period of seven years of tribulation, He's going to come back to the earth, and when He comes back again, He's coming in judgment, folks, and that is going to happen. And you say, well, come on now, I, I don't want to know about that. Well, yeah, you do, because first of all, if you're here and you're in Christ, you've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And you're going to be with your Savior. But until that time, I know we got all kinds of things to do. Coach basketball. Do all kinds of different things. But man, in the midst of that, or despite all of those things, don't you want to just lay it all out? Telling everybody you can see and come in contact with the gospel. Because you know that he's coming back in judgment. And if you know, who else will tell? In other words, this ch chapter, this book tells me, yes, judgment came to Judah, but judgment's coming to the earth on a grander scale, a bigger scale, and you can count on it. Man, praise the Lord, though, that we are safe by the blood of Jesus. Here's another thing. Sin has consequences. That's what this tells us. Yes, there's forgiveness of sins. Of course there's forgiveness of sins. But the consequences of sin are devastating. I mean devastating and I don't even have to tell you about that it's devastating and we are to flee and to run and to find our hope and strength and purity in Christ what is another thing that this book tells us well when you read Jeremiah <laughs> I don't know about you but when he does the roll call of the nations at the end of the book 
the enemies of God are going to be, have a remnant, or there's going to be a remnant for the enemies of God. And there's a place for even the enemies in his kingdom. Wow. In other words, it tells me, and for the people itself, the people of God himself, there's mercy. God is merciful. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we repent and move on in him. There's newness of life, and his mercies are new every morning. That's what this book says. Which leads me to another word. <laughs> See, if all of that's true, and I think it is, then nobody has hope like us. Nobody has hope like us. We have a settled expectation that all that we do and all that we're going through and everything that's happened, maybe the circumstance wasn't great. I didn't enjoy when my dad died. It wasn't great. I wasn't clicking my heels saying, yay. But in the midst of that terrible thing, God did amazing things and worked out good things from it. And the reason I'm saying that is because there's hope even in the middle of destruction and despair. Even when it looks bleak and it looks like there's no way out, there always is with God. There's hope. Let's pray. <laughs> well, Lord, thank you so much. So many things we can learn from this old book. But Lord, your word is eternal and never changes. And Lord, we can always count on your word. Where else can we go for that? <laughs> Nowhere. So thank you for tonight. And thank you for these people. And thank you for the people who put together the food and the eating. And we just ask that you bless this time to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.